Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or whenever you are joining me and tuning in to hear about one of the greatest hobbies in the world. I'm your host, Zachary Anderson, and this is Your Turn, the podcast where I talk about board games, game mechanics, and other nerdy culture things. For all of my returning listeners, welcome back! And to those of you tuning in for the first time, welcome, and please enjoy the episode. In this episode, I will be discussing a rather prevalent game mechanism that shows its beautiful face in a diverse collection of games, from role-playing co-op games to dudes-on-a-map war games. Following this, I will take a deeper investigation into two games where this mechanism is used as you create species to conquer the food chain, and another in which you wipe the sweat from your brow and work at building the perfect neighborhood block. But once again, thank you for joining me, and let's get to the games. A piece of board game jargon I'd like to discuss is simultaneous action selection. And a quick definition is when all players plan their turns secretly and at the same time. They then reveal their plans and all take actions accordingly. Most games that use simultaneous action selection will give the player a few actions to choose from. For example, you may be choosing to move pieces around the board in a certain way, or trade certain goods for others, or attack a certain location. But like so many other games, the player must balance what they want to do with the ways in which they will accomplish this task. Though the actions at your fingertips may feel small or weak in comparison to other board games, your choices can send ripples through the entirety of the game. The drafting and selection of a specific card in Seven Wonders may prove detrimental to your opponents, as they may no longer be able to produce necessary resources to win. Understanding how your actions can affect other players and in turn, how their actions can impact your plan is vital. In most games that use this mechanism, a player will need to be able to at least somewhat hypothesize what their opponents may do and be prepared for their actions. Knowing when to send in your saboteur to cause a rocket to falter on the launch pad while allowing your colonists to jettison to Mars and Mission Red Planet can prove to be game-changing. I am not saying you should memorize everything your opponents have done on each turn, but having a general idea of what cards have been played and the general actions they have been using can help you make better choices as you two lock eyes and see who will call chicken first. One common scenario experienced when playing games that use simultaneous action selection is the revealing of conflicting choices. Most often, after choices have been chosen and shown to the other players, there is normally a playing order in which the actions are carried out. And it is in this turn order that plans begin to go awry. Players may find themselves in the path of someone before them, causing their pieces to be pushed around the board, or at least into a not-so-great location. They may find their meticulously crafted plan 
was all for naught as their turn begins and they are no longer where they wish they were. In some co-op games, a player could have planned for a magnificent set of actions leading to tremendous damage done to their foes, allowing their party members to rush ahead, only to find out on their turn that when they step forward, instead of swinging at a beast, they step into a trap and cause their own death. Though not prevalent in all simultaneous action selection games, there can be a sense of chaos that covers the board as turns take place. It can be all too easy to get angry and frustrated with your fellow players as they thwart your perfect plan, even when you are on the same team. But I encourage you to be wary of your feelings and emotions and know that these games can add a bit of randomness and throw unexpected twists and turns into your path. They may not always be the most fun, but these games can lead to funny stories and some pretty wild experiences. A few quick suggestions if this semi-chaotic mechanism sounds enjoyable to you. For those of you that enjoy cooperative games that can at first be difficult to figure out, but in the end be an amazing experience, I recommend Gloomhaven, in which each turn players will choose two cards from those available to play, one to tell the order in which they can take actions, and then both cards giving an action. If you prefer rolling dice and hoping for the best, I would recommend Roll for the Galaxy, in which dice are rolled and you allocate them using their shown faces to trigger different phases for all players to take part in. Finally, we have the game that can prove to be a massive headache if you are going into it wishing for a perfect scheme, Robo Rally. Be prepared to be pushed and shoved all around the board as confusion ensues and players go the wrong direction. But I promise, if you go into this game knowing that randomness will take hold, you may just end up with a big old grin on your face, even if you didn't win. The first game I'd like to discuss is Welcome To. This game was published by Blue Cocker Games. It was designed by Beno Turbin, with art done by Anne Heidzik. It was published in 2018, plays between 1 and 100 people, according to the box, and plays in about 25 minutes. A quick how to play. To set up, each player should take a scoring sheet and something to write with. I recommend pencils in case you need to erase something. Shuffle the city plan cards and randomly select one from each level, placing them on the table. Shuffle the 81 construction cards and deal them into three equal stacks of 27. Place these face up, showing the house numbers in the center of the play area. At the beginning of each turn, and the start of the game, turn over the top card from each construction deck and place them to the right of their corresponding deck. These turned over cards will reveal effects and abilities available for the turn. Players will now simultaneously choose one of the house numbers currently shown and write that number in an empty house on their score sheet. 
Each row of houses must be in ascending order and repeats may not be allowed except when a specific ability is used. After writing in the house number, players may use the effect on the card to the immediate right of the number they chose. Players may choose not to use the effect. If a player is unable to write in a number because it would break one of the housing number rules, they must mark off one of the building permit refusal spaces and do not get an effect this turn. Once all players have either written in a number or marked a refusal space, the next turn begins with the next three construction cards being flipped over and play continues. If a player fulfills the request of one of the city plan cards, they may reveal it to the other players and mark down the bonus points they get from the card. If you are the first to score the city plan, you will get more points than those who complete it on subsequent turns. The game will end when one of three criteria is met. Either a player has marked off all three building permit refusal spaces, a player has completed all three city planning requests, or a player has filled in every single space in their neighborhood. Once one of these has been met, players count up points and the player with the most points wins. I am not what you would probably consider a capable individual when it comes to building things. Um, I did build a small table within the last six months, but even then the legs are kind of wobbly. So I don't know how much I would trust myself to build a house, let alone construct an entire neighborhood. But that doesn't keep me from playing this game. Each available row on a player's score sheet is a different size. As the top row has 10 houses while the other two have 11 or 12. One would think that this would not cause a major dilemma. But since the numbers on the cards run from 1 to 15 and come up in a random order, it is imperative to make selections wisely. As mentioned in the brief setup, house numbers must be placed in a specific order and cannot be repeated. Though you are able to place numbers in any available house, I find myself counting and recounting and counting for a third time the number of houses remaining in a row and then doing some crazy weird math equation to try and figure out how many of a card has come up and the number of options remaining and if I have any specific effects that could help me it becomes a little chaotic. Quick example. I know the temp agency power allows you to increase or decrease a house number by up to two which means I could turn a 13 into a 14 or a 15 or shrink it to an 11 and now I might be able to use it somewhere I originally couldn't uh, thereby giving myself more options but as each turn passes and new effects are flipped over the player is given a plethora of options to consider with some houses having pools you want to make sure that you use the pool manufacturer effect in order to build these pools and gain the bonus points. Yet, the player must also 
Think about the bonus points offered by the landscaper and attempt to make sure that you are not letting these extra bonuses fall by the wayside. And finally, you cannot forget about the real estate agent who makes housing estates, which are used to make your city plans, which are worth more points. And then you also get points at the end of the game for having those estates. There are so many options in this game. So many different strategies a player can take. There are other powers, but I'm not going to go over them all. But please realize that every play of Welcome 2 is going to be different. It's going to be unique. And you are always going to be able to adapt and work in a new way. I want to talk really briefly about two specific ways to get points. And they're honestly the two most stress-inducing. Pools and gardens, or parks, I think they're called. On a player sheet, there are specific houses that are drawn with pools in their backyard. And these are available for players to gain points but they must number the house with a card paired with the pool manufacturer effect. You are unable to fill in a pool at any other time. It must be when you number the house. And this can be a problem, as you must make sure you are not cutting yourself off from these scoring opportunities. And once again, when it comes to building pools, I find myself counting houses over and over and building elaborate plans about how to max out my city streets while still gaining swimming pools. Not gonna lie, where I live right now, it is super warm during summer and I would love a pool. The other clever way to gain points is by planting these parks or gardens and using the landscaper effect. Now, I love a nice garden. I enjoy spending time at a city park. I love listening to birds sing and bugs chirp and the wind whistle. And though it is quite minute in Welcome To, the player is able to number a house and use the landscaper's power to fill in one of the street's parks. Each street has a different number of gardens, and thereby they have different point values. At the end of the game, you get a number of points equal to the lowest number still visible in each row. Even though it's a small piece, it is still a great way to gain points, and something that all players should recognize. Welcome to can have one of the most disappointing and frustrating ends I have ever experienced in a roll and write game. Though, technically, it is a flip and right. As mentioned previously, one way the game will end is if a player is forced to mark their third building permit refusal. And this can come swift and painfully, because a player can be carefully planning and situating their houses perfectly. But one slip up, and the errors can snowball. I've had countless instances of having my houses placed exquisitely, leaving room open enough for a little bit of wiggle. But then all three cards revealed fall within the same one or two digits, and oh look, I don't have any opportunities because everything's full. This feeling of worry or fear only heightens as the game nears its end, as there are fewer and fewer openings upon my board. 
I'm sitting on the edge of my seat knowing each row already has numbers one through seven filled in. I have a little space for the higher numbers. Now look, all my new choices are below six. Fantastic. Well, there goes another ding. And look at that. More negative points. Yay for Zach. Arr. This fate is avoidable, but it can be stressful. But with extreme counting and just a hint of luck, you can probably do better than I do. In the majority of the games I've talked about throughout my time here at your turn, there is some amount of player interaction, whether it is from direct conflict and war, fighting for worker placement spots, or discussing how you're going to work together in order to complete some vast plan. But Welcome 2 is a bit different, because when it comes to player interaction, there is next to none. It does not matter what cards and effects another player chooses because their board will never cause your actions to falter. The reason I say there is next to none instead of completely none is because when it comes to scoring points at the end of the game and the city planning cards, there is a bit of competition. The first player to achieve the required estates on a city planning card will earn the most points while any other player will receive the lesser of the two available values. There are also points awarded for the player who uses the most temp agency powers the most, which grants, I think, seven points. Though these may not be the grandest way of interacting with other players around the table, this can be frustrating and can cause you to make risky choices in order to get those points first. In the end, the lack of players directly affecting one another creates a sensation that feels more like a solo game, which I'm not mad at because those are often my favorites. I would love to win and claim myself to be the greatest city organizer in the realm, but to be honest, when it comes to this game, I'm just happy to beat my high scores. Since its release, Welcome To has become a rather popular game in the board gaming community, and with its ease of setup and play, it has become a great game to introduce to people interested in joining the hobby. I have only played the original version of the game with the base player boards, but I know there are variations released with themes ranging from zombie apocalypse to Halloween, Christmas to a re-implementation in Vegas. I would highly recommend this game to anyone who likes to solve puzzles and work within spatial awareness to try and make all pieces fit. The next game I'd like to discuss is Evolution. This game is published by North Star Games, designed by Dominic Krapuchitz, Dmitry Knorr, and Sergei Machin. The art was done by JJ Ariosa, Giorgio de Michel, Catherine Hamilton, and Kurt Miller. This game was published in 2014, plays between two and six players in about 60 minutes. A quick how to play. For setup, give each player a species board and a food bank bag. Players will place a wooden marker in the one slot for both body and population size on their species board, place the watering hole tile in the center of the play area, and place the food tokens to one side, but still within reach. 
Shuffle the trait cards and place it face down on the table. Randomly select who is going first and give them the first player marker. Gameplay is divided over a number of rounds and each round is broken down into phases. Phase 1. Deal cards. To start the round and the game, deal each player 3 cards plus 1 extra card for each species they have in front of them. If you have to shuffle the deck at any point during this phase, this means you are currently playing the last round. Phase 2. Select food. Each player will secretly and simultaneously select one card from their hand and play it face down into the watering hole. We will come back to these later. Phase 3. Play cards. Players may now play cards to add traits to their species. Each species can have only three traits. Players may also discard a card to add a new species or increase a pre-existing species body or population by one. Phase 4. Feeding. It is now time to reveal the food cards selected earlier. Add up the numbers in the bottom right of these cards. If the number is positive, add that many food tokens to the watering hole. But if it is negative, remove that number of tokens. Starting with the first player, play goes around the table and each player must feed their species one at a time. This means that if a species is an herbivore, they take a single food from the watering hole. If the species is a carnivore, they must attack and eat another available species at the table. A carnivore will gain food equal to their prey's body size. In order for a carnivore to attack another creature, their body size must be greater, though there are some offensive traits that can overcome these discrepancies. After all species have eaten, Players will move their collected food tokens from their species boards to their food bag. A couple other rules. Species may not gather more food than their population size. If a creature is unable to eat, whether there is no food left in the watering hole or there are no viable prey remaining at the table, the player must drop their population to a level that matches what food they could gather. If a species population hits zero, this species has gone extinct. The player discards the corresponding species board and all traits, then draws a number of new trait cards equal to the number of cards discarded. Following the feeding phase, the next round begins and the first player token shifts to the next person. If the trait deck was shuffled before the round, the game ends and players count up the food tokens they have gathered. The player with the highest number of tokens wins. Now for some thoughts. Within the realm of board games and video games, you are given the opportunity to control a wide variety of people, animals, civilizations, and in the rare situations, a plant. I'm looking at you, photosynthesis. In many of these experiences, you have the chance to create your given subject however you like. But evolution offers a unique look at species creation as you are given complete control over what traits your species have and can trade them as the game continues. Species can become overpowered hordes as they lay waste the ecosystem or they can be devoured before they even get a chance to steal a single bite of food. But no matter how strong or weak your creations are, they are truly your creations. 
And I will admit to feeling a bit like the great fictional scientist Dr. Frankenstein and have the strange inclination to yell, It's alive! As each of my species takes its first step before yelling, And now it's dead! As Mike's ferocious pack hunters ravage my beautiful beasts. I miss them. They were beautiful. As you go about creating your lovely species, it is important to take a specific factor into consideration. Should you make an herbivore? Or would you rather be the next king of the creatures and build a carnivore? Trait cards come in three colors, red, green, and yellow. These colors denote whether the trait is used to build a gentle herbivore, which is of course green, or a sharp-toothed meat-eater, which is shown in red, or a possible trait which can be used for either, which is yellow. I do want to mention that some cards are actually a mix of these colors, but these are easy enough to figure out just by looking at them. And also, every card tells you what they do at the bottom. Choosing between herbivore and carnivore can prove to be the crux of the game, as playing as a plant eater will lead to battling other players for food in the watering hole, which can potentially dry up and then you'll starve. Yeah. That's never fun. Um, but carnivores do not have to fight over the vegetation supply, but they're faced with the challenge of making sure they can attack others at the table. So determining how to best outfit your carnivore can lead to a wonderful puzzle as you examine and anticipate what defensive traits your opponents will use, and then, hopefully, be dealt the offensive traits to counteract. For example, if I create a massively sized long-neck herbivore, making it nearly impossible for something to be larger, Lisa may be hoping for a card that gives pack hunting, which allows her to add her population size to her body size, and then kill me. Some traits are actually their own weakness, as Addie may believe her climbing creature is safe from attack, only to realize when it's too late that Mike's carnivore also has climbing and is dragging her from the tree. Sorry for being graphic. Just a little bit. And it is in the feeding phase that this pseudo-combat takes place. There are no pawns on the board, no dice to be rolled, no cards to be played to determine a victor. Instead, the players simply go around the table hoping they'll be able to get enough food without being eaten and left hungry. If a player has more than one species, they must choose which to feed first, which could potentially mean life or death. There is one trait that allows a species to burrow and be protected as soon as it has eaten its maximum amount of food, and therefore players are encouraged to feed them first and quickly, while players with carnivores are racing to gobble them up before they dash underground. Speaking of carnivores, tension is built as you try to persuade those preparing to attack you to go after someone else, throwing empty threats about seeking revenge, or talk of fairness about their actions, because I swear, Mike, you killed all my creatures last time we played, and Garrett's animals are just as vulnerable, and will actually give you more food. 
So please, for the love of giraffes, go after him. Paxton allegiances are not spoken about in the rulebook, but players most certainly can wheel and deal around the table, discussing agreements to never attack each other or to throw in food cards with high numbers. But, just like the Animal Kingdom, this game is fierce, and I will warn you, when playing this game, make sure to keep an eye on your back, or else those you consider friends might just sink their teeth in and lead to your extinction. One thing that makes me kind of sad about this game is the lack of crazy visuals you have provided for your insane creation. There is such a wide variety of traits and a multitude of different variations you can create, but you never get to see the combined monstrosities, I mean beauties, in the game. This disappointment is not isolated to this game, as most board games do not have direct representation of changes you make to a civilization or character. But I would have loved to been able to see how weird my carnivore looks as I gave it a hard shell, the ability to scavenge, and being a pack hunter. The mental image of a scary, sharp-toothed gang of turtles just pops into my head, and it's hilarious. But I would have loved to see my wacky animals in play, so my opponents can see the vicious beings ripping their weak herbivores to shreds. I realize that I'm making myself sound like I'm always the carnivore. I'm usually the gentle giant trying to eat and hide. All this being said, I would like to point out that if you play the digital version of the game, once you have finished uh, your playthrough, you are presented with an artistic rendition of your creations using the same art as what you see on the cards. And I will say, it's beautiful. Even with the immense disappointment in the lack of art for my ridiculously crafted creatures, I must say, I absolutely love this game. And I started off not enjoying it. It was only through many, many plays that I learned to love it. The feeling of changing tactics on the fly and morphing your beautiful herbivore into a ferocious carnivore ready to thrive in a target-rich environment always brings a smile to my face even while one of my species is dying. The art on the cards is wonderful, and the drive to continually adapt and grow your species is enthralling. If you are looking for a game with a good amount of strategy, and also a strong payoff for clever planning, I would highly recommend you check out Evolution. So here we are. Another end to another episode. Taking actions in games can be an exercise in determining what is essential and what you can do later. But when it comes to some games, the choices you make may be altered by those people you are playing with. Welcome to may not have player interaction, but the puzzles force players to map out their neighborhoods to the best of their ability to rack up as many points as possible. While evolution leads players to a time where massive beasts ruled the world, and it was eat or be eaten. As for me, I'm going to grab my food and duck into the underground. Giving players choice is a great way to bring people into a game and create investment 
and what is going on. And both of these games discussed today know how to generate player agency. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to like this episode, listen to others, leave me a review, and share this with friends and family. You can also check out pictures and updates I post over on my Instagram at z.a.yourturn. Feel free to drop me a line or a comment. Let me know what games you have been playing or are interested in hearing about. It has been a pleasure talking about these amazing games with you. And I'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. As always, I've been your host, Zachary Anderson, and this has been your turn. And now it is your turn to play some games and have some fun. Be safe. Have a good one, y'all.